Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. He kōna e pūrangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. Piki mai kake mai. I'm Alison Balance and welcome to this Our Changing World podcast from RNZ. New Zealand has a very long coastline and, as a consequence, a lot of shallow coastal waters, about which we know not a lot. But for the past five years, a couple of autonomous underwater vehicles have been hard at work, clocking in thousands of kilometres of sea time, measuring and recording. The AUVs are ocean gliders. They're called Manaya and Betty. The pair are managed by Niwa coastal oceanographer Joe O'Callaghan, and I catch up with Joe and PhD student Kushbu Jakor to hear about a surprising recent finding about where river water ends up in the sea. We use ocean gliders to remotely sample the ocean. Uh, they measure all kinds of water properties, temperature, salinity, oxygen, and then light and turbidity, and these robots autonomously sample the ocean when boats can't, so sometimes in bad weather. And they also sample at much higher resolution than we would ever sample if we went out on a vessel. So they're continuously moving up and down. How big are these things? Yeah, so these, these look a little bit like uh, a torpedo. So they're one and a half metres long. They're bright yellow, uh, but they have wings on them. So they look a little bit like an aeroplane. But because they don't have a propeller, they can go and sample the ocean for many weeks to months at a time. So you decide where you want these things to be and you head out on a boat and you launch them and then, what, they have a pre-programmed plan of where they're going to go? So, yes, so what we do is we put them uh, in the ocean on a small vessel. We spend a bit of time testing them, making sure they're all working properly and then we send them on their way and they head towards a waypoint, essentially. So you might head offshore or inshore, depending on the, the project. And we can control these robots from our computers here at Niwa at Greta Point. And so I can check in, sometimes at home, sometimes at 2 o'clock in the morning, and change the program of where the gliders are sampling. So we, we send new waypoints, we find out where they are, and they make regular calls into our computers here. So tell me about this recent voyage your gliders have been on. So... Over four years, we spent a a large chunk of time sampling Greater Cook Strait. We've had lots and lots of missions, and through those missions, we've learnt about some new features in the coastal waters offshore from Tasman and Golden Bay. We've been repeating the same line, so we've been able to get an idea of what happens in this part of the ocean, and what we're seeing is some low salinity features many, many kilometres from land. So low salinity means fresh water. So I'm thinking here in Wellington, I can look out the window into the harbour, and after rain, there's a pulse of fresh water that comes down the Hutt River and makes its way across the harbour and out into Cook Strait. So that's the kind of thing you're following? Yeah, absolutely, yes. Often, you know, the, the, we see them here in Wellington, and they're often quite brown and have got a lot of sediment in them. And so that's quite distinctive. The, the sorts of features we're seeing in Cook Strait is the same thing, but they often don't have such a brown 
turbidity signal with them. They've got a distinctive salinity signal. So, yeah, it's a, it's a measure of the river water in the ocean. So what are the rivers that are feeding into Tasman Bay, Golden Bay? So we have four main rivers. The two biggest one would be Motueka and Aurere. So Aurere uh, discharges into Golden Bay and then Motueka into Tasman Bay. Can you recognise the water from individual rivers? Or can you just tell it's river water? We cannot recognise from which river uh, specifically we are detecting it further out, but a lot of the times it's it's a combination of the several river plumes, though. So it's being dragged by the tides out of the bays. So it's a combined plume that we are detecting further offshore. So before the gliders went out and did this four years of research, what did we know about the river water that fed into the bay? There have been a few studies that were quite limited to the coastal area, so within the bays itself. What we did this time was send the glider out of the bays and we detected those features outside of the bays. So these waters are getting much further. What were you expecting? Were you expecting the fresh water to gradually just diffuse into the seawater so that it became just all mixed up? When a river discharges into a coastal bay... The tide moves it about back and forth, sloshes it about, and then there's also wind mixing at the surface. And so the rules that we think about for ocean processes is that it would be dispersed and it would mix locally and also it just wouldn't have a very substantial signal outside of the bays. And so you know, the, all of those, those mechanisms be, would be sufficient to mix those rivers locally. But we can see that what we call scientific jargon, I guess, is far field. So we've got some quite significant far field signals of these rivers in Tasman and Golden Bays. So is this almost like some discrete blobs of fresh water that are just getting sloshed around out there? It's not complete from where the river is to where we sample them with the gliders. It's changing and swirling, uh, you know, what we call eddies. And so they're quite small eddies uh, and they detach from the main plume as it heads offshore, uh, but, but they're still distinctive in this, this low salinity. So when you say they're small, over what sort of distance does the glider detect this lower salinity? The scale of 4 to 10 kilometres is what we think these features are. It's difficult because we've got incomplete data again. You know, there's never enough data for us scientists, but we, we think that they are about 4 to 10 kilometres in size. So they, they separate from the large plume and then they move back and forth still with the tide. Do you have any idea how long these features are lasting for? They're pretty short-lived, so I would say on, on the scale of hours to days. This area is largely influenced by one coastal current known as the Derville Current, and often the lifetime of these features are dependent on, on, the, on the amplitude of the current in the region. So if the current is strong, it mixes the features pretty fast, and if the current is not present, then these features last longer. So tell me a bit more about the Derville Current. What do we know about it? It's a coastal barotropic current. By barotropic, I mean well-mixed and it, it moves from the west coast into Cook Strait, just north of Farewell Spit, and that's where it interacts with these features because the features is, are coming out of the bays and the current is coming from the west coast north of Farewell Spit into Cook Strait. So we know that the Derby current is highly variable in intensity and its direction also varies, so it reverses every now and then. What's the significance of these freshwater eddies that you're picking up? They connect land to the ocean. And what's, I think, 
new with this study is that it's taking this connection much further out to sea than we previously knew. And this buoyant layer that floats on top of the water column and doesn't mix right away, it it travels and with it potentially carries sediments and nutrients from land, but we haven't really done those kind of investigations yet. I mentioned about the uh, the coastal current earlier, the Derville current. It's it often brings upwelled water into Greater Cook Strait as well, and coastal upwelling is the rise of cold, nutrient-rich water to the warmer, nutrient-poor surface where the cold, nutrient-rich water is then exposed to light and kickstart primary production. And so, this plume of upwelled water often uh, gets transported into Greater Cook Strait by the Derville Current. And uh, what we found from some of the glider observations is that these low salinity features can occur at the same time as the upwelling, and they have stronger signatures in chlorophyll, which could indicate that these features are more productive than the upwelling, which is a novel finding, I guess, for this region. Do you think this is something that's unique to this place because of something about the geography and the way the water moves there? Or do you think if you went looking for this in other places, you might find something similar? Do you have any sense of that? I have a sense that these signals are all around New Zealand waters. We've certainly got some other glider data that's not quite published, but we see these signals elsewhere around New Zealand. And so it's kind of changing our thinking about where rivers end. You know, they don't just end these coastal bays. They they do extend quite a long way offshore. And it's, you know, taking an outward look and fate of what these rivers are doing in our coastal and ocean systems. And so whilst you see signals of low salinity in large systems elsewhere, this is this is quite a different scale these are small rivers, so the, the amount of discharge in these rivers is quite small, but, but at times when we're out there with the glider, we've sampled some very large events, and so these events happen maybe when a tropical cyclone comes into New Zealand waters, and there's two or three times the amount of river water going into the ocean, and we see much, much lower salinity and for a much longer period of time. And so if we think about events in a changing climate, then it's, again, that outward thinking about where a river ends up, and it's not just local, it's much more offshore and if we're getting larger events in the future what does that mean for our coastal oceans. Thanks Joe. That was coastal oceanographer Joe O'Callaghan from Niwa and the Sustainable Seas National Science Challenge. And we also heard from Koshbu Jakor who is a PhD student from the University of Auckland. I'm Alison Balance and this Our Changing World podcast from RNZ first aired on the 3rd of December 2020. You can listen again at our webpage rnz.co.nz slash ourchangingworld The website is also where you can sign up for our free email newsletter. You'll find the subscription link at the bottom of the webpage. If you're in the market for new podcasts to listen to, do check out the podcast tab at rnz.co.nz You'll find some great video series there too. We are on Facebook and Twitter as RNZ Science. Many thanks for your company. Stay safe and catch you next time. Matewa. Botox Cosmetic, Atabotulinum Toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. 
or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.